All right, I think we will sing Standing on the Promises, 175. We don't want to be sitting on the premises. We want to be standing on the promises. You want to stand up together? 175. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, who eternally let his praises sing. Oh, in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God, standing I'm standing. Standing on the promises of God my Savior Promises that cannot fail When the howl of storms of doubt and fear assail By the living word of God I shall prevail Standing on the promises of God I'm standing, I'm standing Standing on the promises of God my see all of you today. I have already mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it again. Our song leader, Joshua, is home with his newborn son and his wife and their other two children. They had two girls, and then the Lord gave them a son as his last child. My wife's sister had four girls. She had four she had four daughters, and then the last child she had was, was a boy, a son. Sometimes the Lord, the Lord does that. And we, uh, we want to remember Joshua, Reagan, and uh, little Theodore, Teddy, they're going to call him. And let's remember them. We'll have to 
Maybe it'll be all right to teach him Elvis Presley's song, Let Me Be Your Teddy Bear. That might be all right. He's going to be somebody's teddy bear one of these days, I'll tell you that. He's a good-looking, good-looking young man. Here's uh, one of the newer songs of worship that we thought we would do with you. We want you to help us. Call How Great Is Our God. And let me say to the musicians, we need to almost drag this because there are a couple of phrases in there that you can't get them in if we go too rapidly. The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself in light And darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. Help us out. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. From age to age he stands And time is in his hand Beginning and the end Beginning and the end The Godhead three in one The Father, Spirit and Son the lion and the lamb, the lion and the lamb. Sing it with us now. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. How 
many of you have heard that? Okay, Everybody. most of you have. Good, okay. All right, stand together with me and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. going to ask the Lord to help us as we look into His Word today, Genesis 39, for those of you visiting with us. We're having a series of studies on the story of Joseph. We like to ask the Lord to help us, help me as I try to teach, and help you as you try to listen. Ah, Father, I stand. Genesis 39. I'm going to move this over here. There we go. Genesis chapter 39. Now, before we read the scripture, I want to make a brief announcement that's in the form of a prayer request. I have shared with you from time to time that we support various ministries, you support them. Without you, our support of those ministries would not be possible. One of them is there is a fellow down in the island of Dominica. His name is Danny Shanks, S-H-A-N-K-S. Danny hasn't been here in many years. He's been in those islands for probably over 30 years preaching the gospel. He is a good gospel preacher. He's a good preacher. He's solid as a rock. And Danny needs prayer because they've discovered uh, a growth. I don't know if it's malignant or not. I encouraged him to come to the United States. And he said, oh, I'm comfortable down here. But now his brother and sister-in-law and other people have persuaded him. So he may already be in Houston by this time. That's where he was from. His father was a pastor friend of mine named Jack Shanks. Jack pastored until he passed away in Houston, Texas. So I'd like to ask you to lift up your prayers to the Lord for Danny Shanks. Danny Shanks. Remember him before the Lord this week. Ask the Lord to heal him and give him some more time to preach the gospel. Now, one other thing. If you go on the internet and you Google Danny's Poems, D-A-N-N-Y apostrophe S, Danny's Poems. He has started writing poems. He felt like that's what the Lord wanted him to do. They're all biblical poems, and they're good. I've shared them with a couple of people, and uh, the people I've shared them with thought they were good because they, they carry a biblical theme, always trying to lead to Christ and the gospel. So please remember Danny Shanks. 
Genesis chapter 39, as far as I can tell, this is our 21st study, and today I have titled this message, The Angelic Conflict, The Angelic Conflict, Genesis chapter 39, and we're just going to read one verse, verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word, and let God's people say, praise the Lord, and you may be seated. Always good to see all of you. Some of you have been going through some sicknesses recently, and we're glad you're here with us today. We praise the Lord for raising you up and returning you to the worship here at Grace Church. Now, our studies of Joseph were put on hold last Sunday so that we could consider Psalm 100 and the subject of thanksgiving. So I don't have to review everything, but you know this. You know that Joseph is in prison. We just read that 20th verse. We know that he's in prison because his master's wife, Potiphar, who bought him on the slave market from the Ishmaelites, who were sold to the Ishmaelites by Joseph's brothers, his master Potiphar was enraged when his wife, Potiphar's wife, told him a lie, told him that Joseph had tried to come on to her. And the opposite was true. She had, for years, been too friendly with him and wanted an intimate relationship with him, and he withstood her. And so finally, when she made a big play for him, he ran out of the house, and it so infuriated her, it so humiliated her, that she told all the servants that he had tried to rape her, and then she told her husband the same thing, and her husband put him in prison, and that's how he got in prison. Now, that would be the end of the story for Joseph ending up in prison if we didn't look beyond the obvious events. And this brings us to today's theme of today's study, the angelic conflict. There are three personalities directly or indirectly involved in every event on this earth. Three personalities that are directly or indirectly involved in every event on this earth. Man, number two, the enemy of man, and number three, the creator and the redeemer of man. Joseph is in prison because of the lie of a woman, number one, because of the work of the devil, number two, and because of the purpose of God, number three. The woman lied, the slanderer, by the way, the word devil, diabolos, is translated slanderer or liar, and the word Satan is translated adversary. So he's in prison because of the lie of the woman, because of the work of the slanderer, the devil, and because of the purpose of God. The slanderer, the woman lied, the slanderer inspired her lie, and the Lord used both the woman and the slanderer to accomplish his purpose for Joseph. Now, I would suggest, if you want more details, 
about all of these events. You just order the last study. They are given to you out here without cost. And uh, I want to begin today's study by kind of landing where I left off last time and where I try to start with each study, and that is this. Every doctrine that's taught in Scripture, every doctrine that's taught in the Scripture may be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this case today, what we're going to see about Joseph can also be seen in Christ and can also be seen in every believer's experience as we pass through this world. So the doctrine that we can apply to Joseph may also be seen in Christ and also seen in our experience. So let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus come into the world? Well, a simple answer would be God the Father sent him. So a second question is, what was the reason behind his coming into the world? Why did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world to save a people given to him by his Father. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, uttered before Jesus was born. So why, what was the reason behind his coming into the world? Well, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So he came to save his people. How will he save his people? How will he save them? Jesus himself said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Now, the lifting up of the Son of Man does not refer to lifting him up in worship, exaltation in worship. I've heard, had, uh, heard a lot of teachers, a lot of preachers who have used that passage to talk about lifting up Jesus, glorifying him, praising him. That's not at all what that passage is. Jesus quotes that passage from the Old Testament uh, uh, event when Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole because people were being bitten by serpents. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referring to his being lifted up from the earth on a cross. As the Messiah, he is destined to die by means of crucifixion on a Roman cross to save his people. He must die as a substitute on a wooden cross. He can't die by falling off a cliff or by being stoned or by being stabbed or by being beaten to death. By the way, you might remember when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that often they tried to do those things to Jesus. Often they were going to stone him. Often at one time they were going to push him off of a cliff and kill him, but he can't die that way. And the Lord, his Father, our God, preserved him through those things so that we would know for sure that Jesus is the promised one. He is the Messiah because he must die in a certain way. He must die on a cross as our substitute. 
He must die willingly. He can't be forced to die. He can't have an accident and still be the Messiah. All right, so how did he get to the cross? Well, kings and rulers and high priests and betrayers and the slanderer himself, the devil himself, put him on the cross. The Bible is very clear. At the Last Supper, you can read it in Luke chapter 22. At the Last Supper, the Bible says that the slanderer, the devil, moved Judas to sell his master to the Jews. Let me read it to you. Then entered Satan the adversary, into Judas. Then entered Satan into Judas. Judas Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and Judas went his way and communed with the chief priest and the captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad, and they covenanted to give him money. And he promised and he sought, that is, he began to seek an opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Now, how much did he sell, how much did he sell Jesus for? Thirty pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, it said the Messiah would be sold for thirty pieces of silver. You see? So all of these things show us that Jesus is the Messiah. Once again, how did Jesus get to the cross? Well, kings stood up and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah, including Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, the people of Israel, and they caused the death of Jesus on the cross. But let me ask the question again. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53 in your Bibles. Let me ask this question again. How did Jesus get to the cross? The answer, his God and his Father put him on the cross. As we read about all the wicked men who had a part in putting Jesus on the cross, we must add another responsible person. And listen to this now. I'm going to read from Isaiah 53 in just a moment, but listen to this passage from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning verse 27. Truly against your holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, my friends, listen to me. You're never going to be able to figure it out, so don't stay up at night worrying about it. Men do what they want to do. They do it freely. They do it without compulsion. But God's will will always be done. Those two things don't contradict each other at all in the Scripture. You know, theologians, when they can't explain things, they come up with theological uh, jargon, and you know, we know what a paradox is. A paradox is something that seems to be contradictory, but once you study it, once you study it out, then you figure it out. It's not really, for example, if you were standing in a railroad track and you look down the railroad track, the two tracks look like they come together down there. But you just keep walking down a railroad track and you're never going to reach the point where they come together. 
they disappear to come together. And so we look in the Scripture, the Jews, when they looked in the Scripture, they only saw one set of promises out here about the Messiah coming. They didn't see that there would be two comings. They just saw one. We know that there's two comings. We know that he came as a lamb, he came as a a humble servant, and then he's coming again as the lion. He's coming again to rule the world and literally rule it. And then we have beyond the paradox and uh, uh, these other issues, we have what's called an antinomy. And an antinomy is the setting forth of two things that can't be reconciled in our minds, but which nevertheless are true and set forth in the Scriptures, both is true. Now, I could give you a lot of illustrations, but I'll just give you something real quick to think about. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No man can come unto me except the Father whence has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Those are two things that we can, I can reconcile those. I can reconcile them by faith. Men are totally depraved. They are unable to come to the Lord. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, none seek after God. Is that what it says? If nobody seeks after God, how are people saved? Well, we are the lost sheep, and he is the shepherd. So does the shepherd seek the sheep, or do the sheep seek the shepherd? You answer the question. It is the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. We're the lost sheep. Isaiah 55, we have turned every man to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. Just receive the Scripture and receive it in truth, and receive it by faith, and in time the Lord will help you to have a clear understanding of it by faith. Now, reading in Isaiah 53, the chapter is called the Gospel of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, we're reading about a graphic summary of how God himself put his Messiah, whom we know to be God's own son, on the cross. He put him on the cross to save his people from their sins. So let's look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. Now you know it begins, it begins with who has believed our report. It says, I'm going to give you a report nobody's going to believe. It's unbelievable, he's saying. Nobody's going to believe this. But then he says how you're going to come to faith in it, how you're going to be able to believe it. He says, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm, arm is a, what we call an anthropomorphic statement, just means using a physical part of human beings to explain a spiritual truth. So he says here that the arm, the arm is the symbol of power. The power. Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the place of position and power, the power of God. Okay? So he says here that this faith in this report, coming to believe this report, is going to come by revelation. It's going to come by the revelation of the power of the Lord. So we get down to verse 5, and it says, He's wounded. For our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. That is, he was wounded because of our sins. He was beaten because of the evil we did. 
Then he goes on to say, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We are healed from the curse of sin by the punishment he suffered. We are made whole by the beating that he received. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. That is, all of us were lost. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now watch this now. And it is the Lord who has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The punishment that fell on him was the punishment we deserved. Verse 10, go down to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Literally, it says, it is the will of the Lord that he should suffer. His death was a sacrifice to bring forgiveness. Now, we just read, we just read in the book of Acts that Herod was responsible for putting him on the cross, that Pilate was responsible for putting him on the cross, that the Romans, by their means of execution, uh, crucifixion, they were responsible for putting him on the trial. We know that the high priest with the Jews cried out when they said, well, let me release Jesus. We got this guy Barabbas over here who's a, a murderer and a revolutionary and a thief. You want me to let Jesus go or Barabbas go? They said, let Barabbas go. Let the thief go and crucify Jesus. So they're responsible The Gentiles are responsible. Herod is responsible. Pilate is responsible. But all of that, behind all of that, God himself sent his son into this world to be put on a cross for the substitutionary sacrifice of himself to take away the judgment that rested upon them. Now that's what the scripture teaches. Joseph, same thing. Joseph has been thrown into prison because of a woman's lie, because the slanderer inspired her to lie. You see, all lying comes from the devil. The only reason we know how to lie is because the devil taught man to lie in the Garden of Eden. So all of us are born in this world lying. I read a a study once of a, a fellow that dealt with infants, dealt with babies and children, and he convinced me that when, when babies are born after they're in the world for a while, maybe a year or so, that they'll often cry when they want something, but they don't really need anything. They really, they start boohooing and crying because they need something, or because they act like they need it, they don't really need it. They'll fib with you. <laughs> What I'm saying, we grow up and we have to teach our children to tell the truth. You never have had to teach a child to fib. I don't know, maybe some of you watch on Sunday evening, there's a thing that come on, the the funny videos, what's it called? American funny videos, AFC or something like that. And uh, they have a segment on there every Sunday about kids that look right at their parents their parents will put some candy on the table and say, now don't touch that candy till I get back, and if you don't touch it till I get back, I'll let you have it. As soon as mother goes out of the room. Then when they come back here, did you touch the candy? No. You didn't touch it? Uh-uh. 
And they were out on camp. One guy, he had, one little boy, he had chalked it all over his mouth. Did you touch that? Oh, no. Why is that? That's because all these lying things come from the devil. He introduced the human race to the lie, and we have a problem telling the truth if it doesn't benefit us. Joseph has been thrown into prison because of the woman's lie, because the slanderer inspired her to lie, and because God has a purpose for Joseph, and it goes by means of prison. Jesus died on the cross because the Father sent him to do so, because wicked men put him there, and because of our sins. Is that not right? That's exactly right. Now, when we do business with this because of this sin, when we do business with our sins, and when we do business with the salvation of God, we need to remember that it is the Lord's will for us to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross, get it now, because of wicked men, because he came to die, because the Father put him on on that cross. Now, each person that's saved is saved, number one, in spite of his or her own depraved nature and stubborn will. It's wars against the God that is holy. Number two, in spite of the great slanderer who often uses and inspires friends and family to destroy us. And number three, in spite of the many toils and dangers and snares which lie in our path. We are saved. Grace is an in spite of thing. It overcomes everything else. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So what do you see in all of this? What do you see? This is what I'm getting at. Here's the devil. Here is our own sinful nature. Here are the, the uh, adversarial people, friends, and families, sometimes our own adversaries. What do you see in this? You should begin to understand that there is a conflict that is raging all around us. And this is an angelic conflict raging around us. And it's the same kind of things that happened to Joseph that happened to our Savior, and they happen to us also with varying degrees of severity. In fact, since the creation of man, the human race has been involved in this angelic conflict, and we will be involved in it until the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns and establishes peace on the earth. Now, that's why we read passages like this. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In high places. What is that telling us? Number one, we are in the midst of a war. It is not a war of an enemy we can see. It's not flesh and blood, but it's a war against spiritual wickedness. 
Number two, only God can actually see the enemy. We only see him by the effects of his tactics. When you see a tree bending like this, especially at this time of the year and the leaves falling off of it, what do you say? You say, I see the wind blowing, but you don't really see the wind blowing. You see the effects of the wind. The wind is invisible, but you see the effects of it. And we know that the devil is at work because of the effects of it. All of this chaos and this confusion that's happening right now in our world, and especially in the world of the United States, is inspired, I have no doubt, is inspired by demonic forces. It's part of this angelic conflict that we're in. And only God can actually see the enemy, but we see him by the effects of his tactics. When we see resistance against the truth, we know that the liar is active. When we observe that darkness is preferred to light, we know that the prince of darkness is involved. We do not fight against an enemy we can destroy or injure by carnal weapons. I'll tell you where this passage is. You can read it later. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. But we are fighting a spiritual battle. We can't use carnal weapons like guns and knives and rocks to destroy this enemy or to fight against this enemy. The weapons we must employ are spiritual. And this is clearly the meaning of such passages as 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, they're not literal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So let me make three observations about that passage. There it is on the board for you. Number one, we are indeed flesh and blood. We are human beings who live in a fleshly body, but we do have a soul. And this soul exists within us as a spiritual entity. In other words, the soul is just as real as the body, but it is something that lives within and energizes the body. Number two, we do not employ fleshly, that's carnal, physical weapons in this warfare. We walk in the flesh, but we don't war in the flesh. And why is this? Because our battle, number three, is not really with human beings, but with wicked and evil powers which rule human beings, whose goal is to keep human beings from the knowledge of the God who created them. I hope that makes sense to you. So here's a question. Why do you think Stephen, do you know who Stephen is? Stephen is the first Christian martyr. You can read about him in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts 6, 7, somewhere right in there. You read about Stephen, and he told them about Jesus as Messiah. He told his Jewish audience that Jesus was the Messiah, and he covers quite a bit of history in the Old Testament Bible with the, the, the 
part of the Bible we call the Old Testament. He covers quite a bit of history and he brings it all the way down to Jesus. And then he ends up by saying, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart as your fathers did always resist the Holy Spirit and so do you. And brother, when he got to that place that says they stopped up their ears and they began screaming in rage and they rushed upon him and they grabbed him and they drug him out of the city and they stoned him to death. And listen what it says. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, how could he pray a prayer like that? Because he knew that his murderers were being moved by the powers of spiritual darkness. He knew that he did not wrestle against flesh and blood, and so he used a spiritual weapon. He used prayer and petition in the name of Jesus. You say, well, a lot of good that did him. Well, I'm going to tell you something now. I keep reminding you, you guys think I'm repeating things often, but I know I'm repeating them, and I'm repeating them so you'll get them. You don't know how many times people come up to me and say, you know, I never saw so-and-so-and-so, and, so and, so, and I've, I've only said it about 3,000 times since I've been here. But they didn't get it till that day. And that's okay. It's the same way with me. I have passages of Scripture that I see, and all of a sudden it jumps out at me, and I see what the Lord is saying in that particular passage. So here's what I'm saying to you. So, so Stephen prayed and said, Lord, don't lay this to the charge while he was dying, while they were stoning him to death. And you say, well, a lot of good that did. Well, let me, let me read the rest of the Scripture here. They cried out with a loud voice. Remember now, God has something to do with everything that happens. Men have something to do with it. The enemy has something to do with it. But the ultimate plan and purpose that's going to be kept is going to be God's plan and purpose. So we just walk in obedience to him. We let him take care of the circumstances. So listen to what it says now. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and they all ran upon him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Who might this young man be? He's the one that we will later know as Paul the Apostle. And the witness that Stephen gave as he was dying pierced that young man's soul. The English version says this, they kept on stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not remember this sin against them. And he said this, and then he died. That prayer, that prayer was answered when the Lord dealt with Saul of Tarsus who heard him. Saul was there holding their coats so they could get a good wind up and throw those stones and kill Stephen. Let me, let me remind you of another example. What about the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ as he was dying on the cross for our sins? Let me read it to you. 
Luke chapter 23, beginning verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, the two thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And listen now. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What does that mean? It means that Jesus knows that all of these murderers and all of these wicked men are being moved by the slanderer, the devil. They are responsible, but the ultimate cause of it is the slanderer. Our Lord was doing battle with unseen powers, with the rulers of the darkness of this world. So once more, our enemy cannot be seen with the naked eye. And therefore, the weapons that we use must not be carnal weapons. We are fighting not with human beings. We are fighting against spiritual, wicked forces, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in charge of the darkness of this world. And I know that's difficult to do. In fact, I think it's impossible to do except by the grace of God. As I have previously explained at some point in the past, before the creation, before Lucifer became the enemy of God, before he became the devil and the great dragon, he was given possession of the earth to, to rule. But when he led a great rebellion in heaven, his rule on earth was abrogated. It was repealed. So having lost the battle, now listen, having lost the battle, you can lose the battle and not lose the war. So having lost the battle in heaven, he didn't conclude that he had lost the war. And so he brought the battle that he started in heaven against God, against the sovereign will of God. He brought that to the earth and to man. Now I would like for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The angelic conflict on earth is because of the conflict that was in heaven. The eternal purpose of God involved birthing an elect people out of whom Jesus, the Messiah, was to come. And when the devil failed to stop that, he came to the earth to persecute the elect people themselves. Now, who are the elect people of God? Well, they have three characteristics. Number one, they all believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Number two, they all trust, love, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, they make up the new Jerusalem. Behold, I come quickly, the Lord says in Revelation chapter 3. Hold fast what you have. Don't let any man take your crown. Him that come overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go in and out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write upon him my new name. Listen to this now, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth, were passed away. There was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Listen how he describes New Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, 
that this is, has to do with the church. Prepared. The new Jerusalem is like a bride prepared for the Lord, for her husband. Now God, think with me a moment, God called Abraham. From Abraham came Isaac, from Isaac came Jacob, from Jacob came Israel, and from Israel came the Messiah. And from the Messiah came the church, the called out ones. The church is constituted of Jews and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is Messiah, they believe that Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the one predicted in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So if you're in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to see that in Jesus Christ, the middle wall of partition, the separating wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down in the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking to Gentile believers, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, at that time you were without Christ. You were apart from Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were foreigners and you did not belong to God's chosen people. And you had no part in the covenants which were based on God's promises to his people. And you lived in this world without hope and without God. But notice what he says. But now, let me turn my page of my Bible here. But now in Christ Jesus. See at that time, that was in the past. But now, now he says... In Christ Jesus, you who were far off are made nigh, are made near by the blood of Christ. Now in union with Christ, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the sacrificial death of Christ. How is this? For Christ himself, verse 14, Christ himself has brought us peace by making Jews and Gentiles one people. That's what he says in verse 15. Making Jews and Gentiles one people. With his own body, verse 16, with his own body he broke down the wall that separated them and kept them enemies. He abolished the Jewish law with its commandments and with its rules in order to create out of the two races one new people in union with himself. And in this way he made peace. By his death on the cross, Christ destroyed their enmity. By means of the cross, he united both races in one body, and he brought them back to God. Now that's verses 12 through 16. Now, now skip down to verse 18. And I'm going to comment on this. You can read it literally. Let me read it for you and then I'll comment on it. And through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Verse 18. Verse 19. Now therefore you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And here's what he's saying. He says, it is through the Lord Jesus Christ 
that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are able to come to God in the one spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ into the presence of the Father. So he says, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners, you're no longer strangers, you're now fellow citizens with God's people, and you're members of the family of God. You got that? Now I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Now when you're coming to Christ, when you hear the Word of God, when you, let, me, let me start back again. When you invite people to come and hear the Word of God, all kinds of excuses are going to be given, and I suggest to you that behind that is the spiritual conflict. I suggest that, the, that you parents are going to have spiritual conflict with your children. I, su- I suggest to you that all of this conflict and chaos and all of these things that are happening in this country, uh, all of this behind this is the great liar, the great slanderer, the great person who brings all this confusion. The Bible says very clearly God is not the author of confusion. That's a passage from Corinthians. So where there's confusion and chaos, and I don't just mean a little confusion in your home about moving something from one, one uh, uh, oven to the refrigerator and you spill it, but I mean real conflict that has to do with God and Christ and ultimate things and ultimate truth. Behind that is the liar, the slanderer. And the, 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 uh, the, the reason for it is to twofold. Number one, to keep people from Christ. And number two, to keep Christ from being glorified and magnified. And we have to be careful in churches because we can make music the centerpiece. We can make personalities the centerpiece. I get literature. You wouldn't believe the literature that I get inviting me to go to these seminars and these things and the, the whole idea. And this is expensive to, pr- to print these things on this uh, paper, this glossy paper that has all of this on it, inviting me. And, 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 and they'll have like 10 or 12 personalities. You're going to get to see so-and-so. You're going to get to hear so-and-so. Well, now, let me tell you something. Let me let you in on something, and I want you to remember this. There's only one celebrity in the kingdom of God, and that is Jesus the Christ. There ain't nobody else worth mentioning. Nobody else is worth mentioning. Not Professor Sounding Brass and Dr. Tingling Cymbal. We're, we're not interested in that. I'm not interested in seeing people, in meeting people. I've met famous people in my life. Back when I was in music, I met a lot of famous people. I've met some famous people in the theological world since the Lord converted me, but none of them impressed me. There's only one celebrity in the church, one celebrity in the kingdom of God. It's not Dr. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the only person I'm interested in getting to know more about. I have people give me literature all the time, give me books all the time. They want me to read what Dr. So-and-so said and what Professor So-and-so said. I'm not interested. Why do I need that when I've got what God said? I'm going to judge them by this. I'm not going to judge this by what they say he says. 
I'm going to see what he says and judge them by what he says. I don't need all that literature. I don't need all those things. I've got the Word of God, and you don't either. You just keep reading all of these different authors and all these different things, you're going to get confused. Just read God's Word and stay in that. Stay in that. Revelation chapter 12. Now, this is not, I believe, I'm going to give you my take on it. This is not a prediction of future things in Revelation chapter 12. This is a recapitulation of things that have already occurred. This is about the contest between the church and the Antichrist, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And his way is divided. In the first 11 verses, the battle was begun in heaven. And in verses 12 through 17, it was carried on in the wilderness of this world. It was a battle begun in heaven, verses 1 through 11, and it was carried on in the wilderness of this world, verses 12 through 17. And so here is depicted the battle of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which goes all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, where the Lord said to the devil, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Now, you can get a bruised heel and be temporarily hurt, and maybe even walk with a limp, but if your head is crushed, you're put out of business. So what that says in Genesis 3.15 is, is that the promised seed of the woman is going to put the devil out of business. He's going to destroy his kingdom, but he is going to be injured in the process. And that fits right in with our Lord Jesus Christ, who was killed, who was murdered, but the Father resurrected him three days later, having completed all that he was sent to do. Now this mentions a woman here in verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. I believe that the woman is the purpose of God, especially the purpose of God in the church. And this is a picture of weakness and submissive to her husband and dependence upon him for provision and protection. That's why it's portrayed as a woman. No, number two, the moon, I believe the moon represents the world. She stands upon the world and she lives above it. So she is standing on the moon, it says. There appeared a stand, and she was, the moon was under her feet. I believe the moon represents the world. It is the moon by which we tell time and which determines lots of things in this world. And I think that that represents the world, she stands upon the world, she is above the world. The 12 stars, I believe, are the doctrine of the gospels preached by the 12 apostles, which is a crown of glory to the believer. You'll notice that the symbolism here of uh, the moon and the sun and the 12 stars is almost identical to Joseph's dream especially his second dream that you can read about in Genesis 37, verse 9. He had that same dream of a moon and the sun and stars and so on. Then we read in verses 3 and 4 that there's a child to be born, and there's a dragon waiting to destroy that child. Verse 3, there appeared another wonder in heaven. See, there was a great wonder in heaven, verse 1, and here's another wonder in heaven, verse 3. 
There was a great red dragon. He had seven heads. He had ten horns. He had seven crowns upon his head. And the tail, his tail, drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, to give birth to the child. And he was standing before her to eat up, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now the dragon pulled one-third of the stars of heaven. I believe that refers to the angelic host. That's what it says right here. The red dragon drew, verse 4, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. I personally believe that that refers to the angelic host, to the rebellion, and the success of that rebellion involved a third of the angelic host. He moved them out of their places, and he sent them down to the earth. This is usually, usually interpreted as rebellious spirits that followed Lucifer in his rebellion. Verse 5, this is, I believe, the Messiah. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up into God and to his throne. Now, this can't be just about the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was caught up to the throne after he finished his work here in this world, but this is also Christ in his people. Christ in his people. This may be the spiritual nature of the kingdom. Look at this in verse 6. The woman is able to hide among the wilderness of the nations of earth. Isn't that the way the kingdom of God is? The kingdom of God can't be seen, but the kingdom of God is where the king is honored. Wherever the king is honored and the king is Christ, that's where the kingdom of God is. Right? Jesus said, when they were asking him about the kingdom of God, when it would come, he said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Wherever the king is honored, wherever the king is exalted, wherever the king is worshipped and praised, there the kingdom of God is established. Now you can read in 1 John that for this purpose Jesus came to destroy the kingdom of the devil. How does he destroy the kingdom of the devil? When a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the devil there in that place is destroyed. Okay? So this woman is hiding in the wilderness of this world. Verse 6. You probably have more Christians in China today than there are in the United States. But you don't see them. They don't walk around with a big C on their chest. I'm a Christian. They're having to be underground. They're having to worship uh, underground in secret and so on. Well, with the purpose of God certain, verses 7, 8, and 9, the birth of the woman's child as well as the safety of the woman has all been secured. The devil is kicked out of heaven. And since he cannot overthrow the purpose of God in heaven, he will attempt to overthrow it in the earth. Verse 7, 8, and 9. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought against his angels and did not prevail. That is, the dragon did not prevail. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And we don't have any doubt about who the dragon is. Verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So we know who, the, who this dragon is. 
And he's the one who deceives the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Angels come from the word angelos, just means messenger. The Bible says that the, that the hell, death and hell, will be thrown into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That doesn't just mean angelic creatures. It means anybody that's a messenger of the devil, I believe. All right? So the purpose of God is certain because the devil was defeated in heaven. The child that was born from the woman is safe and secure, caught up to heaven. And so the devil can't win that war, that battle in heaven, so he comes down to the earth. He's kicked out to the earth, and he's called, you'll note in verse 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren. That's uh, Satan. Satan is accuser, adversary. The accuser of our brethren, the slanderer, I'm sorry, the devil, accuser of our brethren is the devil, is cast down which accused them before God day and night. You remember when uh, the devil went up to the throne of God in the book of Job, and, and the Lord said, where have you been? Well, I've been running around in the earth. Well, have you considered my servant Job? You remember all the suffering that Job went through? Who brought all that suffering on him? Well, the devil brought it on him. But he did it by the permission of God. But he brought it on Job. It was the devil who brought that suffering on Job. So may I suggest to you that the major weapon of the one named the accuser is slander. And this is how he attempts to overthrow the people of God, how he attempts to overthrow the purpose of God in, by, and through them, just as he did with Joseph. And we have to remember the lesson that we are again learning today, because by means of it, we'll be able to love our enemies, we'll be able to sincerely pray for those who seek to destroy us, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, spirits of wickedness in high places. So we have to learn to put on the armor of God, to use our spiritual weapons, the weapons of God, whence by power of the Spirit will be, enable us to pull down what the Bible calls the strongholds of the slanderer. Now you notice in verse 11, that the victory of the people of God will be a spiritual victory obtained by faith in the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and a supreme love for Christ. Look at verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Your salvation, where does your salvation? Is your salvation in being a member of a certain church or a member of a church with a certain name? Or uh, is your salvation in the blood of the Lamb? He was sacrificed for you. He was your substitute. He's the one that took your hell and your judgment. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. What is their testimony? Their testimony is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And thirdly, they had a supreme love for the Lord even over their lives. They loved not their lives unto the death. 
Now, having established the truth that the people of God will be saved in spite of all that the slanderer can and will do, John is now going to tell us what will happen in more detail. That's verses 12 through 17. The people of God will be waging spiritual war against the slanderer. Look at verse 12. Rejoice, heavens, ye that dwell in them. He's been defeated. He's been kicked out. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you. And he knows that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. I believe that is the purpose of God, and I believe that's the purpose of God, especially in the people of God who are in the called-out ones, the church of the firstborn. And the woman was given two wings, verse 14, that is, the Lord helped this woman, the Lord helps his church, the Lord helps his people, he helps those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that she might fly into the wilderness and to her place where she's nourished for time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. I'm not sure about all this time stuff, but I do believe that the, the, the lesson here is that she's hidden in the wilderness and the devil doesn't know who is uh, who belongs to Christ, except when we confess that, when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, and we stand for him in spite of all the opposition. Now the serpent, verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth water. Now water is a symbol of false religion and false doctrine. In other words, I believe the devil is the author of all the false religion in the world. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and false doctrine, he's the author of all of that. He's the one who has propagated those, those religions. People have hopes in everything. They have hope in their ancestors. They have hope in their nation. They have hope in their gods. Buddhism and Hinduism have thousands of gods. And there are people that are in the United States, those religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, a lot of these religions of the East, when we're left in spiritual darkness, people in the United States are embracing these things very rapidly. You read in the book of Acts that the apostle Paul and some other apostles wanted to go in a certain direction to preach the gospel. The direction they wanted to go in was east. And said the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going east, you're going west. And from that point to today, the gospel spread toward the West. The Western nations have the enlightenment of the gospel. The Eastern nations are in heathen darkness to this day. And this is that water that comes out of the mouth of the dragon. Uh, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood whence the dragon cast out. The Lord preserves his people one way or another. And the dragon was angry, verse 17, angry with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I believe verse 13 is literal persecution. I believe verses 15 and 16 are spiritual heresy. And then the people of God are singled out in verse 17. Finally, very quickly, turn to 2 Timothy, and I'm going to draw it to a close. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, 
chapter 3. If you don't get anything else out of this, get this, that there's a spiritual conflict going on. And there's a conflict between the devil and men. Ultimately, the Lord is victorious. Uh, The devil will not be able to figure out what the Lord is doing, just like he actually helped. He helped put Christ on the cross by inspiring Judas to betray him. He actually fulfilled the scriptures without even knowing what he was doing. And men do the same thing. But the victory will be our God's victory. If he's, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what we're told. Let me just leave you with this. Verse 12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That persecution is going to come from the slanderer who moves men and uses men. But evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you continue in the things which you have learned. You stay in the Scripture. You stay in the Bible doctrine. You learn the Word of God, the things which you've learned and you have been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned them. From a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Parents, teach your children the Word of God. Teach them the Holy Scriptures. Once you're able to make you wise under salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theos noustos, God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God or the person who knows God might be perfect, that word is complete or mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, that is, having everything you need to live in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what good works are. I charge thee, chapter 4, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead. He shall judge those who have been made alive in Christ and those who are dead, not only those who are alive in their physical bodies, but those who are alive in Christ and the dead, those who are still dead in trespasses and sin. He will judge everyone at his appearing and his kingdom. Here's what you to do, Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant in and out of season. That is, always be ready to serve the Lord when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. The time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine. After their own lust, they'll heap to themselves titches having its and ears. They'll want something that tickles their fancy. They don't want to hear the truth. They just want to be entertained. They want to have a feel-good message. They want to have all of these things. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth, and they'll be turned into fables. They'll be turned into fable. My friends, that is a, a, a miniature picture of where we're headed. 2 Timothy 3, 13 through chapter 4, verse 4. We are to keep our minds occupied with God's Word, to stay in the Word, to learn the Word, to memorize the Word, to witness to others with the Word, to keep looking to the living Word, Christ, who's revealed in the written Word, the Bible. This is where we need to stay as we see things worsen. Stay in God's Word, and your hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I want you to see that we're not facing anything new today. Joseph faced it. Before Joseph, Abel faced it. Others faced it. Our Lord Jesus Christ faced it. The apostles faced it. And now in 2021, here we are, and we have to face it also. So let that, those things that characterize those saints in Revelation 12 characterize us. Our salvation is the blood of Christ. Our testimony is that Jesus is the Christ. We confess that He is our Lord and He is our Savior. And by His grace, we're going to serve Him until we're through with this life, regardless of the circumstances. May God enable us to do it. Let's stand together. Now you can get this message and listen to it again. There's a lot of information for you, but I've tried to make three things clear. Every event in this world, we're involved in it, human beings are involved in it, the slanderer is involved in it, and the purpose of God is involved in it. And if we can just trust the Lord, regardless of what it looks like, He'll make it come out. (laughs) He'll make a way out of no way. He'll preserve you. He'll bless you. He'll make a way for you, regardless of how the world goes. May the Lord help you to do that. Let's sing our song. Under the blood of Jesus. Under the blood of Jesus, safe in the shepherd's fold. Under the blood of Jesus, safe while the ages Thank you for your patience this morning. I've kept you way over time, but I felt that I needed to deliver what I had to say, and I hope you'll consider it and pray about it and pray over it. I want to dismiss you while asking you again to remember to pray for Danny Shanks. Remember to pray for Cheryl and Steve Cothran who are here this morning in the loss of her uh, son, Seth. Uh, I want you to praise the Lord for people who are well again, like Steve and Meg back here, and some of the rest of you have been sick. We're glad to see you, and we hope that you'll stay safe and keep looking to the Lord regardless of your situation. Um, And uh, be careful this week. Uh, We've just gotten through Thanksgiving, and now we're going through, getting through December and all the way through New Year's. So it'll probably be nonstop from now to then. Some of you will be traveling. Please be careful in your traveling and keep always looking to the Lord. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace through the blood of the everlasting covenant. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right.